Today's show is brought to you by Netflix. On Recode Decode, we talk to tech giants about privacy and data all the time. In the new Netflix film, Anon, you'll enter a world where there is no such thing as privacy and where authorities track your every move. Anon stars Clive Owen and Amanda Seyfried. Grab a friend or a few and watch the hair-raising edge-of-your-seat Orwellian thrill ride available May 4th only on Netflix. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as a screenwriter of the hit horror movie, The Frightful Five, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview I did back in March at the University of California at Berkeley. I was sick at the time, I think, with pneumonia, which is why my voice is going to sound a bit off. But this interview is part of a week of classes at Berkeley's journalism school. I talked to the New York Times tech columnist Farhad Manju about being a journalist in 2018 and the growing power of the Frightful Five, which is his term for the five most powerful tech companies right now, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Alphabet, and Microsoft. Let's take a listen. So let's start about this idea. You wrote, how many years ago did you write this column about the Frightful Five? It was... um I think it was two years ago. It was, it, it was uh, after that Hateful Eight Tarantino movie came right, out. Right, okay, right. <laughs> so I had that in my head. So, right. um, you know, 2015, I 2015. think. 2015, yeah. okay. Explain the Frightful Five to the people who didn't read the column. Yeah, so it's um, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft is in there for a special reason that I'll talk about. But, um, so I started, you know, I started... I wrote a, a story in um, Fast Company in like 2013, like a long time ago. Right. Um, and that turned into this uh, book deal that I got, and it got delayed because I got a uh, job at, th- at the Times and stuff. But the idea then at the time was, you know, there were these four companies, <laughs> Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, that seemed to be, one of them seemed to be becoming the next Microsoft, you know, right. the next, and, and I was going to write about which one of them it would be, kind of a standard business story. And then... In 2015, you know, in the last couple of years, it seemed to me that the real story was not which one of them would win, but what if all of them win? Right. Like, what if they all, uh, you know, what if they all kept growing uh, and their powers seemed limitless? They, in many of them, have the powers now that we used to associate with governments, basically. You know, right. Facebook can determine uh, or has a role in national elections. Um, companies like, uh, you know, like, YouTube, uh, you know, the same way. Um, Amazon is basically building national infrastructure at this point. So, you know, Apple fought with the FBI over uh, encryption. encryption, details on people's phones, major national terrorism cases. Um, and, and the other thing is that they're international and they have these, they're, inform, you know, they're American tech companies based uh, here and, and in Seattle, and they have sort of worldwide global powers. Like, they right. can determine kind of the news that people in Africa see and in India. And um, so it seems like they're, they're, they were getting the kind of power that we didn't associate with corporations in the past. Absolutely. I've always thought of them as nation states. You yeah. know, I always think of them that way um, and that they have powers that they don't, that they don't understand. Um, and so let's, let's get into that. So you called them the Frightful Five, wrote this column, which they hate, by the way. They're always like, that Farhad. Like, whenever I... I'm like, calm down, you people. Yeah, I mean, the, pro, the reason they hate it, each of them believes that they shouldn't be there, except Microsoft, which likes to be included. Uh, <laughs> it's so sad. Microsoft used to be so scary, and yeah. now it's, like, not scary, and they want to be scary. Right, so not. that's the reason I have them in there, because I think they're a good example of what can happen to a company. I mean, they're still big and powerful and make a lot of money, but they've been tamed, Right, and you and there's an argument about this, uh, a long argument. But one of the theories is they they were tamed because the government acted against them. Right, um, and so you know that could be a potential future for the others. For the others, okay. Let's talk about that because I covered the Microsoft trial for the Washington Post, um, and I recall at the time Bill Gates um, and I had written a lot about him threatening, threatened companies continually. Mm-hmm. It seemed like he just went around and threatened companies all the time, but they were they were amassing. <laughs> power through the, <coughs> sorry, the operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the government came in and declared them a monopoly, essentially, and their behaviors on that, and that the operating system was so compelling um, that it did. So the government came in and did this case. And one of the things I'll never forget was Bill Gates, before this trial happened, came to the Washington Post. And I'll tell this story very briefly. Um, he, 
um, I invited him there to talk to the editors of the Washington Post. Uh, we had these, these dinners and lunches and stuff where they would come, like you guys have them at the Times. Yeah. And I, uh, I invited him, and I was <coughs> waiting outside the Post for him. And this giant limousine pulls up, which I was like, Bill Gates never takes a limousine. At the time, he wrote Coach, and he was that Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't do that anymore. Um, and and this, this limousine comes up, and this guy gets out, um, and it turns out he's the premier of Nigeria or something like that. And he gets out of the limousine. I'm like, hi, you're not Bill Gates. Um, and I look across the street, and pouring out of a cab, a really ugly DC cab, those cabs are really vile, um, was Bill Gates by himself. Um, and he hadn't showered. Um, as, which was what he used to do quite a bit in those days, which wasn't pleasant. And he was sort of a mess. <laughs> and he came uh, up, to the, up to the top, uh, the, the Mrs. Graham's dining room, essentially, and we had a meeting with the editorial staff. And at the time, uh, he, it was starting to seem like he was gaining enormous amounts of power over the computing arena. And he kept going on and on about, like, I don't have lobbyists. I don't need them. I don't need Washington power brokers. I don't need this. I don't need that. Um, very cavalier, in a really cavalier way. And I kept raising my hand and I said, well, this is a city of ex-student body vice presidents with subpoena <laughs> power, so you better start thinking really hard about that. Um, and I'll never forget, he turned to the, uh, the arrogance was so deep and how it didn't, like, he could not be tamed, essentially. Um, was that, that he turned to the editor of the Washington Post, and it wasn't Ben Bradley, it was Len Downey at the time, and he said, um, Len asked him some question, I don't remember what the question was, and he, Gates turned to him and he goes, that is the stupidest question I've ever heard, which he's done to you, right? Like, yeah. That is the stupidest question I've ever heard. And this was a time when the Post was enormously powerful, you know, as an institution, and it still is, but it was a different kind of power. Right. And... I literally didn't know what to do, and I was like, the stupidest? Was it the stupidest question, really? The whole, the absolute stupidest <laughs> question you've ever heard in your life? Come on, that's got to be stupider questions. Because I didn't, because this was my boss and stuff like that. And I, but I'll never forget his tone and his tonality about what they were doing. And mm -hmm. then the government came in, they had the same tone throughout the trial, and then were killed. Were killed by the federal, I mean, the federal government shut down that ability of Microsoft to do right, that. Right, completely changed the company, and, um, you know, for a while it was, really struggling and right. and still you know it's not it's not a company that consumers think of and reach for and I mean lots of other things happened of course uh, they missed a lot of they, internet terms right, right right but uh you know you could argue that if they if the government hadn't stopped them they could have used that browser monopoly to uh you know they could have used the OS monopoly to uh to win the browser war, shut down everyone, and then and then stop Google, for example. Right, right. Um, and that same sort of thing sort of happens now with the right. other tech companies. I mean, right. um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that I don't cover or think about or um, feel like there's a lot of um, competition to the uh, the giants from from startups. I mean, obviously there are huge startups, um, but in a lot of them, like look at like. For example, Uber is a good example. I mean, Uber's had all of its own problems, but yeah. Google is sort of going to win uh, whichever way the car market goes. Uh, they have, you know, an investment in Uber, in Lyft. Uh, they're suing. Uh, they're suing Su Uber. Su sued. Yes, they, they sued. They sued Uber, um, and uh, and they have um, this car program of their own. So it's it's that kind of thing where like it's hard to imagine any startup beating any of these companies exactly. um, pushing them sort of, and that was, you know, for a long time, that was kind of the story of Silicon Valley. Like you'd be at the top and then, and then you get hit. Unseated, by, right, get, by yeah, two guys in a garage. Right, by the guys in the garage. Right. Um, now, you know, they're fighting amongst, amongst themselves and those fights are interesting and, and, and worth paying attention to, um, but they don't change the sort of overall like structure of the business. That these and, are these powerful most powerful companies. And that, yeah. say, a Google, who, which did start, by the way, in Susan Wojcicki's garage, um, of all things. Um, again, the, the snake eats itself. Um, uh, that you could not do that today. That you couldn't have a company that pops through like a Facebook did, like, a, yeah. like any of them did. I mean, it, it, it's much harder, and, and any startup now sort of has to um, kind of 
pay, pay actual money to these companies or in other ways make deals with these companies. I mean, right. they run all the cloud services, they run the app stores, they run uh, all the marketing channels. They, they run uh, the phones. They run the phones, they run the operating systems. Uh, they sort of run the entire, all of the major platforms uh, for other tech companies, but for the entire economy. So what is the implications of that? Because let's start with, um, let's go through each of them. Facebook, which I think is getting most of the um, uh, attacks right now, and many of them deserved, um, almost all of them deserved. Talk about them, because they have affected news the most. Um, yeah. Here's a company that was very similar to AOL in a lot of ways, was going to help publishers, and then turned on them, started charging them, started manipulating. AOL did the same thing in a mm -hmm. really odd way. Talk about their power right now, because I think my feeling is that they have, I think 60% of news distribution happens on Facebook right now. Is that something? It's some it's number. some number like that. And I think the la there, yeah. was a, there was a survey from yeah. Pew that suggested that close to half of all Americans, you know, consider Facebook a primary source of news, not the, not the only source, but like a big, a big part of how they get news. Right. Um, and if you think about, <coughs> if you think about the size of their audience and their reach, I mean, they're bigger, not just in any other, not just in sort of every other newspaper you can think of, most TV networks, but in a lot of cases, like, you know, all the newspapers in the U.S. combined are smaller than, you know, right. reach a smaller audience than Facebook. Right, and, the same, and, and when you get into other countries like the Philippines or Southeast Asia, it gets really problematic because they're the only source of information, including the source of bad information. Right, um, and in those countries, there's the additional problem of they don't have a lot of people there, they don't really sort of monitor what's going on there. You know, there was been a lot of stories about misinformation uh, in, um, in Myanmar uh, on Facebook, like leading to all of the problems we've seen in, in um, the ethnic cleansing there. And Facebook has, you know, half a dozen or so people and put them in late and sort of can't monitor that. And then just sort of like as a, just thinking about how journalism works, like the idea that um, engineers in, in, um, in California are deciding the news ecosystem of countries very far away where they don't have people um, is just kind of a bizarre world. It's a bizarre and disturbing world. Do you think they've um, abrogated their responsibility? Because what you get from Facebook, which has been an ongoing argument I have with all of the executives all the time. I had an interview with one of them on stage at... Um, a conference a year ago, more than a year ago, um, talking about their responsibility to monitor these programs and control these programs, um, platforms. Mm -hmm. And most of what you get out of people from Facebook is it's a, it's a benign platform of which we are just a platform and we are not a media company. Right. They're very insistent on not calling themselves a media company when I think they are a media company or they're a kind of media company. And therefore they abrogate the responsibility that comes with being, like the New York Times cares if it's wrong. Recode cares if it's wrong and fixes it to being this place where anything gets dumped in and you can all sort it out. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, lately they've been sort of talking about being more responsible and have hired journalists. Unclear kind of exactly what the journalists that they've hired are doing. It's unclear to me, kind of in an overall way, if they are, if the kind of fixes they're trying to make are going to work, and if, even if they know kind of what the problem is and how to fix it. Um, they're trying to be responsible, but I think that their major problem is that to be, to be a responsible media company, you have to take positions, you have to um, decide what's factual and what's not, and they want to be, a, you know, they want to be popular. They want right. people to use them. They right. don't want to be seen as, um, you know, like as deciding what news, what fact is and what isn't in a polarized country here in the United States, but also just for the entire globe. Like, that's not the position that a, um, that a company like Facebook, a platform that sees itself as more of a piece of technology than, um, you know, than a news service wants to be in. Um, it's a very tricky thing for their, you know, for how they see themselves, for the kinds of people who work there. I mean, they're a company of, of engineers, like all, all tech companies. And, right. and to transform into something like the New York Times is just not, but, doesn't work but for them. It's not like the New York Times, it's a new kind of media company. Yeah. It was really interesting around, I don't know if you, follow, you all have followed this, but the very last year when Mark was asked about this, maybe about a year ago, he said there, the Facebook had no impact on the, no, no. He said yeah, he said zero, it was crazy. Crazy, yeah. what a crazy thing that it would have any. 
when he said that, it was very clear that they did, that there, there was some meddling by the Russians on this platform or using the platform, both in the ad area, but more importantly, in the content area. Um, a weekend later, he, he wrote a thing saying, well, maybe we have a little. Like, there was a, there was a sort of slow roll forward. Yeah. Uh, maybe we have a little. And then he put it through in a number, 1%, I think. Mm-hmm. Some, some number, I think they just made up. I actually texted him. I said, I think you just made up this number. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> can you explain it to me? And you better not say 1% if it later becomes 7 or 10 or whatever. Just stop lying, like lying, because you obviously have changed your story. And then over the course of a year, he has sort of moved into, oh, okay, maybe it was more important than you think. And then he wrote a giant 6,000-word essay, which needed desperate need of editing, um, about <laughs> it was. He, he showed it to some journalists, including me, and he goes, what do you think? I said, I think you need an editor, is what right. I think. <laughs> what? Like, well, he's very good. I'm like, you know what? And, but after he showed it to us, it got longer. It got longer. I know. Like, <laughs> I literally was like, you didn't finish college, right? Okay. Um, so, um, so he's not used to being told he's bad at what he does. Um, and so, so we're not far hard not worried that he's going to get into journalism. So, um, so he, uh, so he rolled that forward. They rolled it forward again, and then it continued just to be one re-explanation after another. And when they wrote, first started, said, oh, yeah, Russians are on the platform and have abused it, malevolent actors have abused it, they again did the same thing where they said, it's only a little. And I remember talking to one of the executives. I said, you can't say, don't say it if you don't know. There's, if there's one cockroach, there's 50 cockroaches kind of thing. And please just don't give a, don't say it. Don't say anything. I'm going to call you a liar next week if I have to. And so what, what is in the ethos of this particular company from your perspective from covering? I have some thoughts, but what do you, why do you, so they don't understand their power? Or are they, are yeah, they, I think it's, are they ignorant, willfully ignorant? Or are they just like, they're like secretly evil and love getting paid for it? Or what's, what do you think? So I think it was, I don't think they're secretly evil and, and love getting paid for it. I think there, at first it was ignorance and like a, you know, denial. Um, I think Mark himself you know, I've spoken to him, you've spoken to him over the last year and a half. He does seem to have gone through some kind of evolution about what he thinks the power of his platform is and is trying to do stuff about it. Um, he wants, it's like the, um, you know, like the old George Bush senior, like, message I care. Like, right. he, he does seem to <laughs> care. <laughs> and he wants to tell people that he cares. And, like, he puts out these blog posts often saying that he cares. Um, but I don't, I still don't think that he appreciates the power of his platform and um, and the other thing is, like, the executives around him seem still seem very um, determined that Facebook, the role that Facebook played in the election was smaller than everyone says, that they're being sort of, they're under siege from the media. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I do think some of the Russian influence storyline has been overhyped. Like, I don't think that it's true that the Russians using Facebook alone affected the outcome of the election. But... Facebook is such a huge source of news that it seems unquestionable to me that they played a part in changing the entire news ecosystem that made it both easier for pe- for propaganda to work and um, and you know like scrambled how politics is done in a way that like nobody could predict what happened right um, and the election was determined by you know fewer than a hundred thousand votes in a few places like it's plausible that something happened um, that was either sort of foreign actors or just like propaganda or a very good like Trump campaign well, thing that Facebook was involved in. Right. That yeah. they didn't, I, I feel like that they didn't have control of their platform or know how it was being used. Right. But, so malevolent people could, they built a platform that malevolent people could misuse very easily. Right. I mean, a lot of the stories that we've seen for, from Facebook, YouTube, is mostly a story of unintended consequences. Like right. you build a huge system that lots of people use. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that because I when they did Facebook Live when I and we'll get on to we're gonna get onto Google and YouTube in a second and Twitter because um, I think those and we'll talk about Apple and the others very briefly. But um, when Facebook started Facebook Live, they showed journalists you know the product, and I was in a meeting with some of them and pretty high up at Facebook and I was looking at it and I said, so what are you gonna do about when someone murders someone? Yeah. So my first thing, and I said, they said, what? And I said, yeah, it's suicide. Someone's going to kill himself on this, or someone's going to bully and beat someone. I'm like, what are your tools? And they're like, 
Carrie, you're so negative. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this is a beautiful platform for like Chewbacca Mama or whatever. Right. I don't know. Like, and I was like, don't you even think, what was fascinating to me that it never even, and they even to say that like, it never occurred to us that human beings would do bad things. And I was like, right. have you not met a human being? Or what is no, that? so when I said unintended consequences, I don't, I mean sort of blindly, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, there's, there's been a, Facebook especially has, has done this. Like, you know, throughout their history, they've, they sort of put things out right. and then like months later realize that something bad has happened or right. people don't like it. And then there's like the right. Mark Zuckerberg right. apology post. But it's, it's not the same <laughs> apology post. It's such a good apology post he always does. But it's not like as if it's like a product. See, the, the, the thing is, it's not a product that like if you buy it and your fingers fall off, you know what I mean? And then there's lawsuits. But your fingers fall off. The democracy dies. Like, so it's mm-hmm. not something you see or people get worse with each other. There are consequences that may aren't physical, but they're to the society. We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a minute with the New York Times tech columnist Farhad Manju. Today's show is brought to you by Netflix. Imagine a world where there's no such thing as being anonymous, a place that looks and feels much like the present, but where authorities have access to all of your data, even your most private memories. In the all-new Netflix film Anon, Detective Sal Friedland investigates a series of unsolved murders in a world where crime was supposed to be a thing of the past. From the director Andrew Nichol and starring Clive Owen and Amanda Seyfried, Anon tells the story of a woman who has subverted the law of the land and become anonymous. With all of its suspenseful twists and turns, you'll be hooked from the beginning. Get your popcorn ready and set your phone to Do Not Disturb. If you can, then start watching Anon this Friday, May 4th, only on Netflix. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Emily Steele. She won a Pulitzer Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, depending on how you say it, for her great work she did last year on sexual harassment at Fox News and then later at Vice Media. She's great. We had a great conversation about how to report really difficult stories like this. And also, this will blow your mind, why she doesn't do that much reporting on Twitter. It's amazing. That's a really good conversation. You will like it a lot. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So let's move to um, Twitter. Uh, same thing. You didn't include them in your Frightful Five, but when you think about a company like Twitter, you know they allow bullying, sexism, all kinds of attacks, trolling all over the place. You know it's being used by President Trump in a really unusual way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're. Not, I mean, nice. they're not in my. F- I'm being nice because nice. <laughs> I know Ted, you like Trump. I heard you like Trump, but he's using it, right? He's using tw- uh, tw- Twitter in a certain way. He's taking control of the message, and he's messaging people directly, which is incredibly powerful. And frankly, I think he's the best tw- tweeter, one of the best tweeters. I, I don't like what he tweets, but he, it's, it's still, he's real good at it. He's really, he's used it properly, yeah. as far as I can tell. Uh, I, Him I mean, and Kim Kardashian are the best tweeters. As, <laughs> I think Truth. she's great. Truth. Um, I think Twitter is way smaller than Facebook. I think it is the worst social network. I use it all the time. I think that it, I, you can't not use it if you're in our business. Right. Um, and that's why it's the worst social network. It has this influence that most of the public doesn't understand. And the influence is, it's like the place where uh, cable news is formed. Like, it's the place where all the narratives that you hear on CNN and uh, Fox at night are formed. And like every um, dumb, hot take or trolly thing, or just like all of the... Um, you know, talking points are formed and are disseminated. And so it's, um, it's the place where people who want to take over the media narrative, change the media narrative. It's where, um, you know, the alt-right really got a lot of its power by, um, you know, talking to journalists, um, trolling journalists there, um, and, you know, changing the media narrative in a real way. Um, that's why sort of all of the talk about bots has been important because on Twitter you don't really know who's real and who isn't. They have a completely different policy from Facebook um, in terms of like determining who's real. Person. Yeah, and um, and because of those policies, and also because they've been completely negligent right. um, in a way that you know Facebook seems to. Uh, even if it's reactive, right. they do put people behind their platform and try to fix things when people call them on it. Um, Twitter, you know, like 
the Senate called them and they just like didn't respond. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. didn't like provide documentation to a Senate committee. Right. Um, the, they have been called on. Well, um, they were busy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've been caught on harassment, um, trolling, like all the anti-Semitic stuff that you find on there. Right. Um, you can report, uh, you know, terrible stuff that happens on Twitter, and they just they will either take it down late or not take it down at all. Um, and and instead of like the Mark Zuckerberg apology post, you get the Jack Dorsey like we're trying uh, tweet storm right. that. Um, that then never materializes into actual policy. Right. So what what happens to a platform like that when it's like that when they, you know, Twitter to me is a cesspool. I just don't know how else to put it. And I think when Facebook is not monitoring a lot of stuff, it's like a suburb where all of a sudden you have a lot of glass on the ground. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's starting to get a little messy. Yeah. Kind of stuff. Um, what? How, how does that affect news then? If you're, you know, you and I rely on Twitter. We get a lot of our traffic from Twitter. I'll mm-hmm. tell you, it's one of our biggest. We don't rely on Facebook as much as others. We rely on Twitter. So what happens then for news organizations having to deal with Twitter? Um, You get a lot of misinformation out there. Like, one of the things that... So after the school shooting two weeks ago, there was just so much... um, completely false conspiracy theories being peddled that then sort of gained wider audience uh, because people on Twitter sort of... Because people were talking about it on Twitter that then leaks out into blogs and other places or on cable news. Um, There were lots of sort of either Russian or otherwise bots sort of pushing stories. Um, You just get the kind of news in, in, you know, ecosystem that we see now, which is just a mess for any normal insane. person to kind of figure out what's true and what and, isn't. And professionals, too. I, uh, yeah. I'm a good friend of Maggie Haberman's in the New York Times, yeah. and she was responding to one of her critics. She gets a lot of critics on Twitter. She was yeah. responding, and I texted her. I'm like, Maggie, that's a Russian bot. Stop. Like, stop talking to the bot. Like, yeah. stop arguing with the bot. And she was arguing with the bot, and she didn't even know it. And so I could see, like, I was thinking, this is taking up precious time. She should be reporting. Right. But, but, it was an inter- and, so, but you can't, like, if you're Maggie... You can't not be on Twitter. Like right. you, you sort of have to be. Right. Um, it's it's become part of being a journalist is to report news and then also sort of watch the story of how your reporting is like evolving on Twitter because right. you want to make sure that people aren't uh, you know distorting what you say. You right. kind of have to like you have two jobs. You have to report and then like follow the fighting about your story. Is that on fair there. as a reporter to have to do that? It's insane. Okay. I mean, like it's. It's like takes up your time. Right. Um, it's also like becomes a job where you have to sort fact from fiction like constantly while you're, you know, like throughout your day. Right. Um, Is that and, a good thing? I mean, I don't think it's a good thing. It's just a thing. It's you just have, a thing you have to do. Right? You have to do. It feels like, like a communicable disease or something. Yeah. Um, so what to do about it? What would one do about it? What do you imagine it? It can't go on forever, or could it? I mean, it could. <laughs> so um, what do you imagine it morphing into? I mean, I, I think that for, for Twitter specifically... Well, you I mean, know the government's not going to shut it down because Donald Trump loves it, but go ahead. What, 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 what do you imagine happening? I, I, I can't think of a good fix for Twitter. Like, I, you can think of easy... You can think of ways for, for Facebook to fix its problem. Like, Facebook could... I mean, not easily, but Facebook could hire a lot of journalists, Facebook could like whitelist news sites, could figure out ways to make, and, or just sort of what they've done recently, which is like remove a lot of news from, from the right. news feed. Right. Twitter is kind of gone the other way, which is like they're deeper into news than before. Like they're, um, while Facebook and Snapchat and others have kind of decided like we're going to separate news from like how people are talking about news, Twitter is just kind of very integrated into it. And, um, I don't know. I, don't, I can't think of how you remove the journalism business from Twitter um, because now it's just kind of become part of how newsrooms uh-huh. work. So let's move on to, to Google and YouTube, which I think are two separate things. Um, Google's sort of remain the same as a search engine. tends to do a pretty good job about surfacing stuff. They clean out the algorithm to surface better news and stuff like that. Or do you, do you not think that? Or do you think... They do an okay job. I mean, I think they've been doing... They also have been... Um, like one of the things that's happened is that people have figured out how to game kind of every platform, and so right. people have figured out how to how to game uh, Google's uh, Google News, which then 
rises up to the top of, of Google search results. Um, Google News used to, and I think they still do, I mean, they have a pretty good policy of deciding what's news and what isn't, but part of Google News is like Infowars, is like right. conspiracy sites now. And so sometimes, after, especially after big things happen, it's possible for um, you know, bad actors to put out misinformation that then rises to, to the top of Google. Um, Google says that those are, that, that's kind of overhyped because like, people aren't searching for like, the name of the guy who did the bad thing. And so it's not, it's not like a high traffic search, which I kind of believe. So I don't think it's the hugest problem, but I do think that it's like one of the problems. But much, I think YouTube is... Yeah, yeah, YouTube is... Now remember, mom's in the thing. Yeah. Too, sorry, Esther and Stan, but YouTube's a mess. Okay. Um, I mean, uh, so, I just had Susan on stage I, talking about I think this. For, I think YouTube is amazing. I think like YouTube and is could be a force for good in the world. Like I, um, one of the things I like to do is like I try various kinds of hobbies. So I was like doing pottery recently, and like what? you can just learn how to do pottery on YouTube. Oh. You can like learn anything on YouTube. If you want to be a cook, you can like learn how to be yes, a better cook yeah, on YouTube. Yes. Like it could be great, and I think that in, for many people, it's like amazing. Right. Um, but it's huge. It's so big that it seems difficult to police, and it's video. So you can't sort of police it in the same way that, like, Facebook can look at status updates Right, or right. It's interesting with, with YouTube. When, years ago when Chad Hurley and the, uh, Steve and the other founder was, was at one of our events, uh, I also had George Lucas there, and they were huge Lucas fans, um, and they wanted to meet him, and he came in late. He walked in the door, um, and I said, George, this is the founders of YouTube. And he turned to me and said, you're ruining all of media. I just want you to say, to say that. It's like throwing puppies on a highway is what you do. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And they, of course, they were thrilled to me. They're like, great to meet you. Like, <laughs> we love you I anyway. Like, I think he just told you you're an asshole. <laughs> but I think his point was right today. It's like <laughs> someone was like throwing puppies on like whatever crazy things to do. Like, and here we are at Logan Paul. Yeah, I mean, I think... Does everyone know who Logan Paul is? You should be glad you He's a YouTube star. <laughs> he was a Vine star at first, right? Yeah. And, then he, and then he became a huge YouTube star. I think the phenomenon of YouTube stars is interesting because um, they're, they, they're huge. They, yeah. they, they inspire so much love. And money. Yeah, but, like, the kind of connection that... Um, like, my kids are fans of this... Uh, of, like, other kids who are YouTube stars. Um, and these kids on YouTube uh, mostly just open toys and play with them, and I and like get paid by toy companies. Um, right. So like, they're, my kids are watching like right. basically a long commercial. Um, and but they but they love these YouTube stars so much, like to the point that like you know when I, I don't know, I think they're like the Beatles for my kids, and that kind of devotion. No, there is a fan. There's an enormous fan base. Logan Paul is a YouTuber who. <laughs> YouTube's tried to tame, but has not been successful in it. Um, it, it, it where he, did, he does a lot of wacky things, mm -hmm. mostly tasteless crap. Um, and, but he, what he did is he went into a place where Japanese teenagers hang themselves, a forest, and took a picture of a dead body, took a video of a dead body, um, and thought and, it was funny. And then kind of made jokes about it. Made yeah. jokes about a dead child uh, sitting there. And so they, it took them a bit to throw them off, but it, they, they finally threw, threw them off the platform. And, so I just recently interviewed Susan at our Code Media Conference, and I said, when are you going to get the vile Logan Paul off of the thing? And we had a really good, interesting discussion about what they are and whether they should, again, the same argument, are they just a platform? We're a platform who happens to have media. I think that's what Susan ended up saying. Um, or are they more than that? Should, should they do more? And one of the things she announced recently was adding 10,000 human beings to the mix to, to yeah. vet stuff. I feel like 10 million aren't enough because of the enormous load of videos that come onto that platform from across the world. I think it's 4 trillion. It's some number that's just astonishing. And so, again, you have videos of things, pottery or whatever your kids like. <laughs> you have news. You have all kinds of things, but it's being flooded by hate speech. And, when, again, the alt-right, once again, has invaded it really beautifully, using the platforms beautifully. I just was at a conference where I interviewed the head of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, and I pulled up the YouTube videos, and the, the Google search for ADL will find the regular things. ADL, home site for ADL, here's some news stories. It was all what you'd expect 
okay? Like what you'd know if you were searching, the correct stuff came up. Mm -hmm. When you searched on YouTube, there were 25 anti-Semitic videos before you got to a video that was somewhat related to the ADL and then 100 more anti-Semitic videos, mm -hmm. which was astonishing. And so I said, Susan, I know it's crazy, but there's this search company that's really famous that owns you. <laughs> so I'm really not getting why you can't, what's going on on this platform. And so what's really, and she took it in good humor, but not, she, she understood the, 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 the thing of it. And one of the things, when, this was at an event at YouTube I was at, and one of the employees said, you're right, well, we used to all only worry about cat videos, and now we're in a college ethical debate every day of our lives. Yeah. Like, what should we take off? What should we put on? What should we censor? And they're very loath to censoring. This, Do you think it's censoring to say, we have values and you're violating them and we're going to toss you off? I don't think it, I mean, I think that they, that seems sort of in line with don't be evil. Like, you should, you should have values and stop the th kinds of things that, uh, you know, So are why aren't they violent. doing it? Because I think they, they live in a perpetual state of teenagerhood or something where they don't want to take responsibility, be adults about well, it. Well, I, I think that YouTube, I mean, I think YouTube, like Facebook, now seems to want to do something and now it's sort of a deciding, like a technical matter and a business model matter. Um, I don't know if they'll solve it. The other thing is that this problem for YouTube is going to get much harder because one of the things that's happening is like it's much easier, it's becoming much easier to create um, fake videos that look like real news. Like you can create now using very easy technology like videos of Barack Obama saying things that he didn't say or Donald Trump saying things that he didn't say. We're, gonna, we're entering this period where... Um, you know, technology is going to make the like fake versus real problem like very difficult for normal human beings to figure out. And then, um, so you know, video has such power that right. like people are going to see this stuff and believe it. And a company like YouTube is going to have to like figure out. So how what to do they do? What do they do? They have the AI is the thing they always throw at you. AI is going to fix it, or you know, we've got algorithms that are going to work it out, or something like that. What do you imagine victim? Because one of the you know, the, I had this argument, I interviewed Hillary Clinton last year at Code, and they, I, she didn't know about this. There was, a, there was a story on Facebook, it was a fake story, uh, it was a fake news story, um, in which discussed her being a lizard, that she was actually a lizard, and uh -huh. under her skin she was a lizard, and it was, it, it was not <laughs> factually correct. Um, and, <laughs> and she, so I kept writing Facebook, like, why can't you take this down? This is, she's not a lizard. And they're like, well, you know, and I was like, not a lizard, take it down. It's not, why is that going, well, people post it. I'm like, they can't post that she's a lizard. Like, you can't let them do that. It's not, it wasn't a joke. It was a, it was a fake, it was an absolutely beautiful fake news story. And so it, went, it had millions of views, which was fascinating to me. And, they, and I, I, that I'm sitting there like a crazy person saying Hillary Clinton's not a lizard. Was crazy. It's crazy making to me, and you know. Then obviously, other Russians did it. This agency in Saint Petersburg, well, super adept at it. I mean, but it's complicated, right? So, so one of the things we talk about is how powerful these companies are. Do we? The solutions to these problems often involve kind of giving them more power, right? So, giving them the power to decide the kinds of speech that's allowed and be, and and not is like actually, you know, could in the long run be more dangerous, right? I, I don't know if I want Mark Zuckerberg to decide, like, what the Times is allowed to say uh, on Facebook. Um, and so I think that there needs to be some responsibility and a lot of, perhaps a lot more responsibility from these companies. But at the same time, asking them to exercise that responsibility is asking them to exercise um, a so greater degree it? of is power. Is it government? How can you... Because they'll only get more powerful, presumably. I mean, in other companies, in other countries, in Europe, it seems like it will be government. Uh, I mean, right. one of the things you'll have, you'll, you're seeing in Europe is like um, Europeans are uh, regulators are even more concerned because it's not just big tech companies, but it's big American tech companies that are determining like business and culture and news and kind right. of everything else um, over there. And so you see a lot more, you know, activist regulators. Well, and so, and, others, right. Yeah. And so there, I mean, it could be, it could be government here. It seems like, but the first amendment won't allow that various like laws that we have about technology won't allow that. So, so who does here? Who controls them? I don't think the government is going to intervene at all. I think the government, I had a huge argument with President Obama in an interview 
saying the government needs to step in. They never stepped in with Google. It never stepped in. No, I mean, the, the, the tech companies got huge under the Obama administration and were given, you know, very, very good access light, to very the White light, House. Uh, yeah. Yeah, very good access to the White House and very light uh, regulation. We're going to take another break for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with Farhad Manju, tech columnist for The New York Times, after this. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week, we answer your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. This week, I talked to Recode's Ed Lee about the pending merger of Time Warner and AT&T and all kinds of other media matters. Ed, what is the favorite thing we talked about? What's the favorite thing we talked about? What is your favorite? Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Murdoch, yeah? Yeah, Murdoch and Les Moonves and Sherry Redstone, all the all the media moguls. And whether this merger was going through, which you think it is. Where this merger is going to go through, which I think it's, I think they're going to do it. I think you'll see AT&T own Time Warner. All right, then. How exciting for Richard Plepler. It was a great discussion, and we hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. I want to finish up, and then we have questions from the audience. We have a few minutes for questions from the audience. Um, Amazon and Apple, how do you look at them as, do they need taming? Apple seems like a bunch of adults. I always enjoy going over there because it's like... Apple, um, a bunch of adults, they mostly think about the consequences of their um, products, and they're not um, in any way... A monopoly. I mean, they charge a lot for their products. And so, uh, you know, even in the U.S., the share of the iPhone is like under 50%. So you don't see them. I mean, they're huge and they're the most valuable company on the planet. But they um, seem to run the company in a different way. Because they don't rely on advertising or yeah, the so, slot machine of attention, which right. is what the others all... I mean, right. I mean, the advertising is. business is like a huge... Is, is one of the incentives that kind of changes how companies operate. And like that's why Google and Facebook are different from right. um, Amazon and Apple. Amazon... Because their businesses are predicated on addiction and usage and constant stimulation. Yeah. Amazon is going through, I think, an interesting like transition, like a public image transition like you know a few years ago I think Amazon was regarded as kind of like going to be like something like the digital Walmart like people who love people who used it loved it but a lot of people in America thought that it was gonna um, you know devastate retail and uh, ruin a lot of people's jobs and I think you know people still worry about that but they've been kind of masterful about their the yep. PR uh, recently I mean the um, headquarters the headquarters thing the like announcement that they're going to do something on healthcare, like nobody knows what, but yeah. like everyone was overjoyed about the idea that Amazon would like fix healthcare. Um, well, they're really good at delivering my books, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they they seem to be, and, and, and Jeff Bezos himself, I mean, is doing things like saving a journalistic institution that, uh, that you know, needed saving and is doing it in a way that, like, is inspiring. Um, so I think they're seen now as a perhaps not, like, a totalitarian force for evil and, like, getting But more which of the frightful five in, do you think is most frightful, then? I think Amazon is. I think Amazon could... I mean, I think you could see a future where Amazon is that, like, Microsoft-type company that, like, owns everything. I mean, like, we... Um, the the way that Amazon operates, like its business structure is to, you know, spider out into like lots of different like create products and then like offer them to everyone, become this platform. Um, and you can imagine like all of us at some point paying some kind of Amazon tax, right? On like every every product we buy, every shipment we get, every um, you know, food order you get, like could be part of Amazon. Um, but perhaps not in an evil way. <laughs> well, not today. Right. Not today. I mean, one of the things I'll never forget, um, I wrote a piece when Google was trying to buy, uh, take Yahoo search business, which would have meant they had all search, almost all search at the time, because it's pre-Bing. Um, and I said, um, I wrote a column saying I don't want them to do this. I, the government needs to step in. And I said, you know, the Google people are like, we're good people. We're, you know, that, that story you hear from all of them. And I think I wrote a line that said at least Microsoft knew they were thugs, um, <laughs> which they didn't like, which, which uh, Larry didn't like. And he called me and he said, I'm not a thug. And I said, well, you're not. And he goes, well, why do you think, why do you think bad things? I said, well, you seem okay, but I don't know who's going to run Google in 20 years. 
I don't know who that person. It could be a terrible person. Right. And so it was a really, I, I think a lot of these companies with so much power over Amazon, over our commerce, over our interactions, you know, I think I give, I give much of my salary to Amazon at this point. I, think, I feel like I do. Um, and so I mean, they, Amazon and Disney. So <laughs> in, in ending up, and then we'll ask questions from the audience, do you think they do now see the tide turning us and the effect on jobs of AI? We didn't even get into self-driving. Yeah. Um, self-driving, AI, robotics. I saw an Amazon warehouse that terrified me and fascinated me at the same time. Nobody worked there. No people. Yeah. No need for them. You know what I mean? Like, no need. Like, and they're right. They're, they're correct. Why well, should have someone do something that a robot can do? Um, except for just having the people. It's just because they're quaint or something like that. Um, uh, so robotics, automation, AI, self-driving. There's going to be job, job loss and, uh, because of all these technologies coming. Problem? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... That was that is the big worry with Amazon. I mean, they're uh, you can think of them, them as like an infrastructure company that's like remaking most of commerce in America, right. um, either directly or by inspiring you know competitors to do things like that. Um, right. And it's going to have fast consequences. Not just them, but for, all of them together, as you say. Right. Really, they're going to determine jobs. They're going to determine everything. Right. Jobs, like the news environment. Politics. I mean, one thing that's super interesting to me is we talked about how the government is not sort of, at least the current government, is not going to stop them. I do think it's interesting that the that these tech companies have mostly given sort of aligned themselves with Democrats. Um, I wonder. There's been there's becoming this sort of schism. I think in the Democratic Party, like are. Are Democrats going to fight the tech companies? Yes. There are some who are. Um, on the other hand, there are some who no, I think of, get a lot Demo- of money from Democrats. I know, but I, the Democrats are going to come for tech companies if they return to office. I do. Cory Booker, we've done some interviews. Yeah. It's quite amazing. How, I mean, I think it'll be tech- interesting in the next, you know, uh, in the next Democratic primary. Like, do we see, do we see a big anti-tech push, and you know, does that affect? I mean, it will affect how much money they get from, from, from tech, but like tech's political power, like it'll be different under the next Democratic president than it, did, than it was under the last Democratic All right, Democratic so questions president. from the audience right here. Do you think that Google and Amazon should be broken up? Do you think Google and Amazon should be broken up? I think there's a good argument for that for Google, but I'm not an antitrust lawyer. But I've spoken, you know, the, the, case, the case for breaking up the tech companies is best against Google. For, for reasons that, you know, for Google search, uh, there, there was a kind of a long-running question of, like, are they suppressing um, other companies that are providing information uh, on the web? Like, Yelp was the classic example, right? So Yelp um, is a restaurant review site and, um, you know, complained to the FTC uh, that its reviews were being... Um, you know, downgraded given lower impact in Google search because Google had its own product. Um, you sort of systematically, if you look at Google search results, they favor Google's own um, products. Um, that you could say is like classic what happened in the Microsoft case. Um, and, they're, and they are, Google is both the, you know, Google and Facebook are the biggest um, digital ad companies. They're on the way to becoming the biggest you know, ad companies of any kind. Google is the biggest search engine. Um, there's a lot of, like, kind of clear... Uh, the ad market is particularly disturbing. Yeah. Um, Amazon, I mean, Amazon, the case is much harder to make, right? They're not, they're not the biggest retailer. They're not even the biggest digital retailer. I mean, they're the biggest digital retailer, but they're not the majority of digital retail at this point. And at some point, they will be very soon. Uh, but they're under 50% of, of that. I think that with Amazon, people worry about their just crazy growth and that at some point they will be, and so you should be worried in the future. And also their kind of the scope of their, the obvious scope of their ambitions. Like they're, they're going to be in like physical retail, digital retail, like, uh, and all. And Logistics. Sort of the, yeah, the entire chain of retail. I'm going to take over the post office. Um, but, but, you know, there's, there's this um, re-examination now of antitrust law and how, and 
and whether it can be changed and how people should think about antitrust with regard to the tech companies. Because they don't fit, a lot of them <laughs> don't fit the kind of classic model that we thought of with like AT&T and even Microsoft. And what's happening in Europe is what you should watch. Marguerite Vesker, we did a couple really good interviews with her. She's been really on them in a way that no U.S. regulator has done. The U.S. regulators have passed and passed and passed again. The FTC, um, the FCC, all of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, and... Trump, when he was campaigning, like it's quite anti-tech. So right, he was saying often he was going to go after Amazon. Uh, he was going to shut down various tech companies, but has not done any of that. Yeah. And the, I mean, yeah. the people he's appointed to the FTC and the, um, have you know aren't likely you know to to do that. No, it's it's they, he has. I don't think he's going to fall through. Next question over. I I got very concerned. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of things you're saying is anti-press, anti-free press, yeah. because it's saying control, because, I mean, China's controlling everything in their people. Right. Europe wants to control certain kind of media, certain kind of, I think what you need to do, maybe if you create a rating system, a ranking system, something you can inform at the bottom, but taking away my chance to see that video that I want to see now because of the Japanese thing, because there's such a controversy. Right. Um, yeah, that's an argument for it. It's just, they, my argument against it is that this is their platform, and they sh this is not what they stand for. You can get that video other places on the internet, by the way. It's all over the place. It's I mean, just, the, they want it as an example of their platform, of their business. Right, and I also think that part of it is not just that it's on their platform, but the question of whether they're encouraging it, right? So Logan Paul posts that video because there's a monetary system in place for him to make money from that video. Um, I think that's the question. You know, not, and, and so a lot of the fake news also, you know, before the election was like people who created entire sites that seemed like news sites that weren't, but were getting, you know, ad money from it, like Google AdWords money from it or Facebook money from it. Um, and so it was just kind of a monetary thing. And that, that kind of system, not just, that, that sort of encourages um, misinformation and other sort of bad stuff that you might, that might not have been there if the kind of platforms hadn't been there. Also, even though you pretend we don't censor things, we censor radio, we censor television, there's certain things can't be on television, there's certain things. We, we censor those two medias because they're accessible to everybody in a public sense. Yeah. And if you're turning something on that you can't control it. You can go through and listen to something and you get an offensive word that is a large audience. Whereas if you go on the internet, you're actually searching for something and trying to find, and you can create filters for that. And so what also differentiates... Videos autoplay, they do. That's the, yeah. They do do that. And what differentiates your video of Hillary Clinton and the Lizard and a Saturday Night Live parody? No, I mean, I, I, this was meant to be a real article. It wasn't meant to be a parody. It was, it was like a fake news organization. It was a, it, what it is is that they... My argument to them is it's bad for their business to have this crap on there. It's like a cesspool. And so they, I'm, I think they... I don't think it's good. It's like having a store, like a Target, and over here is the adult porn section. They just Target doesn't have an adult porn section. They, it's just not their business. And so I think it creates... Um, I think the problem is that they have so much control. They have, they're the only game in town, really. YouTube is really the only game in town in terms of video right now. Right. Is there anything else? I mean, you ha if, you're, if you want to make video, you would have to put right. it on YouTube. Right. Um, I mean, I think the other thing is, like, it's hard to, um, it's hard to call it censorship when their, their entire systems are... Um, like already kind of rank content and um, are based on algorithms that, that give you preferential content. So like Facebook doesn't show you but everything from all your friends. It shows you what it thinks you're going to like. And so one of the arguments for Facebook to kind of clean up its platform is to change its algorithm to show you things you're going to like that are true. Um, so, I mean, if, if it already is making some judgments about what it's you like... Making, then, it is making judgments. And right, right now their new thing is to, is to have... Um, them, the people of Facebook decide what are the real news organizations. Right. Which seems crazy. They cannot just pick, like, 20, you know, pick, pick a New York Times, pick a Breitbart, pick a this. You could pick. They don't want to even pick, so they're going to let the people pick, mm -hmm. which or seems... Oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with someone else who is. 
they tried that. They tried. They tried that. They had labels on it. It didn't work. It just you can't keep up. Yeah, you, they tried some. The amount tried, is so big that you don't even understand how enormous the loading of information onto these platforms are. So it's, they, the computers can't handle it. People certainly can't handle it. And it, it, they, it's just a monster that grows every day. Another question uh, over here. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Uh, <coughs> no problem. So um, the media has sort of writ large since the election has followed Kara's lead and, and started criticizing the tech companies. And I'm wondering whether you think the, the media has been a leader in this area, driving public opinion, or whether it's been a follower um, sort of reflecting an undercurrent that's been there for a while um, and that we're just sort of now seeing reflected in things like opinion polls. And I, I think the, the media has been... I don't think there's wide public discontent with the tech companies. Like you look at surveys, you look at how much people are still using Facebook and um, and the others. Like I think people generally love these companies, generally keep using them. Weren't um, I mean maybe people were. The one thing that's interesting is like lately there's been talk of tech addiction and people yeah. worry about their kids using it. I think there is genuine I think worry about genuine that. Feeling about that. Um, but it, but in other ways, um, you know, lots of a lot of Americans still sort of see these companies as being, um, are you know, are proud of these companies. Yeah. I think. Except I think the stuff coming, they're not going to be so proud. This automation. AI, automation, self-driving, when those things start to really kick in, the companies are not going to be beloved. You know, the people who bring... Self-driving cars eliminate all these driver jobs. Uh, automation eliminates all these warehouse jobs. <coughs> mining is done by robots. They're, you're going to start to... And by the way, mining probably should be done by robots, like, because people die of black lung and every... You know what I mean? So I think there's going to be... My feeling is that we're doing a series on MSNBC about this, talking to tech companies about it. Because I think there's some technologies coming that are disturbing to jobs. I think it's very much like the farming to manufacturing shift, except it's going to happen in a compressed time period. And there's, and there's so much social unrest during that farming to manufacturing. The problem with Americans is we're so frigging ignorant of our history. We've been through this farming to manufacturing. And they're like, oh, it's, uh, we, I, the reason I got the idea for it was Mark Andreessen was like, acted like it was no big. He's like, it's like farming to manufacturing. It was so much better with manufacturing. I was like, no, it really wasn't for those 70 years. All these people lost their jobs. And I said, what happened to the blacksmiths? He goes, who cares what happened to the blacksmiths? I go, well, the blacksmiths had a family, like, and they vote now. Like, you know what I mean? I was like, there's populism. There's dangerous populism. There's, there's all kinds of things you have to think about. So I do think people will begin to care when they start to see real job. Like when an accountant, I'll get to yours in a second. Let me just tell you, if you're, your son's a radiologist, don't let him be a radiologist. You don't, you're not going to need him with computers. Yeah. Accountants, lawyers, high-paying jobs are going to be moved. And I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. But high-paying anything that can be digitized into a job is going to be digitized, period. And you're going to see it happen really quickly in ways that I think you're not going to I mean, believe. the thing you should have your kids do, and I want my kids to do, is just become... Like AI creative. scientists. AI scientists <laughs> or have a job that's creative. Creative. Yeah. Or health, uh, some health delivery. Um, this Thank right you. here. So you talked a lot about how um, big corporations are um, able to really take down startups and defeat them. Um, but do you see the rise um, in, in startups combating this disinformation um, like Verit, which was the Hillary Clinton-endorsed social media platform, do you see those as solutions for this disinformation, or will it come from big companies instead? Facebook's got to fix it. Yeah, it's it's hard to see how like a company or a force outside of the tech companies can solve that. Um, like the companies that kind of run the platforms. Yeah, Facebook's got and Twitter. It. There's nobody over there at Twitter, so I don't know if it's ever getting fixed. Really, you just are like, yeah, that company sort of are like. There's nobody there. Over their heads. They seem over their heads. They're overwhelmed by the situation. Um, right here? I mean, just to be utopian, if you had a Democratic president or a Democratic Congress and all this, what do you think actually could be done by government? I don't know because I think they're incompetent as can be. I just don't want... You know, if we do... We are leading in innovation. We, we have the most innovative companies in this country, technology, technology companies. They're all here. But guess what? China's moving fast and moving hard, like a lot of those companies. And I don't know, I think they just voted on a guy for his life 
just the yeah. other day. Not, not the kind of government I'm interested in. Um, so I, mean, I think that's one of the issues, is if China starts getting a hold of this, and they are doing real well, and they're not copying us, they're innovating. That's a problem, and I've always found it a problem that our phones are made there. I don't think that's a particularly good I mean, I don't, I don't know what, the, what, what you can do to stop these companies from growing and becoming more powerful, but what I will say is, like, one of the reasons that Google is a leader in AI is because the American government is not a leader in AI. Right. Like the American government has sort of stopped funding the kinds of things that Basic became, research. became the internet, right? Like that was created by the government, that was um, you know, funded by uh, the kinds of things that China is doing with AI, um, where like you have huge public money going to start technology and then you don't have it owned by uh, one or two or three or four companies. Yeah. Um, we don't really have that anymore. And so the reason that Amazon is building like national infrastructure is because like no one else is. So they, and they need it helps their business. I mean, Elon Musk has been the critic of AI. Uh, oh, we had him at Code a couple of years ago and he was attacking Google and Facebook because they really do control all of AI. Let me just say, you don't understand. And it's by the way, all white guys doing it. <laughs> just, just clear, so crap in, crap out. Um, so, but that, you're going to get the same thing. No insult, but that's the way it goes. Um, and so, it's a re and same thing with cryptocurrency, by the way. Um, and that's a whole other <laughs> week of lectures. Um, but what you have is you, you've got a situation where the government isn't intervening and that these companies really have the powers. And Elon was talking about it quite, in, you know, he's sometimes a little kooky on a couple of things, but he's 100% correct that these companies cannot, he has a thing called open AI, they're trying to get it so it's open for everyone and so it's developed for everyone. Um, and you know, I think his worries are, are, his worries are, you can debate them or not, because he also thinks we live in a simulation and then none of this is real, um, which would be so great. <laughs> uh, but um, but he, uh, he thinks, he feels that AI will advance so much that it will start, they're not, it's not gonna be like a Terminator where they're gonna kill us, but we're gonna be like house cats. He said, they're gonna treat us like, the computers will treat us like house cats, and that's it, that's how they, they, have, they don't care, they'll feed us, maybe, maybe they won't. Um, and so anyway. So right, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's worrying that, the, that this kind of technology with that kind of potential power, power is owned by for-profit companies. Two, two of them. And, yeah, Three, a, a small Amazon. number of them, yeah. Maybe yeah. Well, no, Microsoft's not that far ahead in this. Okay, very last question. Okay, oh, right there, right there. I Sorry. have a question. Why do you guys think these big tech companies are so bad at foreseeing the negative consequences of their platforms? Uh, like I, you were saying, you saw I Facebook Live, you, you immediately saw it. Is it a diversity problem? Is it a moving too fast well, problem? Well, that's one thing. What mm -hmm. is it? All right, I'm gonna answer mine and then he'll answer his, then we'll finish. <laughs> I think it's, let me go to the Me Too stories that were written recently, and I'll use that as an example. Do you think it's any coincidence that the two big Me Too stories this year from the New York Times and Ronan Farrow written by all women and a gay man? You know why? Because they know about discrimination. They know about these things. You know what I mean? They saw it when nobody, everyone knew Harvey Weinstein was an asshole. No one wrote about it until, you know what I mean? Like, it was fascinating to me that it took people who had empathetic, um, there, was a, there was a link there. They would pretend it's not there, but it, it was because they saw it differently. Um, I think lack of diversity is one thing, is that they don't have enough vi I don't, in the rooms. I think there's not enough irritants in, the, in those companies. One of the things I argued with a Facebook executive recently, I asked him, I said, are there enough irritating people working for you? Because it seems like you're all, you all agree with each other. And you need ir irritants in there saying, what? Like, what? Like, what did you just say, Mark? Come on. Like, you know, they're, they're all like, they're aggressively agreeing with each other, and there's so there's such a cohesive group of people. It's a problem when they have this much power. And I don't mean to say they're evil at their heart, but they just can't help. Like they can't see outside their little group think. Um, and I think and lack of diversity is at the heart of it, really. You know, lack of diversity is always at the heart of these kind of things. And then lastly, they have a personality which is a great personality trait, which is optimism and opportunity. So they see opportunity and optimism all the time, and they don't see the obstacles. And that's what makes them great, and that's what's going to kill them. I mean, the, I think. The kind so, of person... Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I can't <laughs> add a lot. But, like, the, the kind of person who decides in college that they're going to start a thing that um, is going to change the world and then actually 
manages to start a thing that changes the world, like has a particular worldview, like obviously has that kind of worldview, an optimistic worldview, and like everything that's happened sort of confirms that worldview. And so you come to a point where you release a new product and optimism is like the lens through which you, you view that. Yeah, and so, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a really irritable and negative person, so I'm good in that way. But they don't have a lot of that. And I like that about them, and I hate... I really want to slap them hard. I agree. I like that about them. It's it's I just like want to slap it's them one up. of the fun like it's 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 um it's one of the fun things about this industry, but it's also one of the yeah. like irritating things about the industry okay. when they don't notice sort of obvious things that could happen. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'll finish on the story. I was at Google, um, and they had those bicycles, and are now in all the cities the colorful bicycles. And Sergey was was the one that was really pushing them. And years ago, he said, "I'm going to drop a hundred thousand bikes in New York City." And this many will get stolen. He had the whole calculation worked out. Like, 82% will get stolen, and then I'll put another 100,000. And, and so they put the bikes around Google to try uh, those colorful bikes around Mountain View. And he's like, what do you think of our bikes? I said, all I want to do is take my car and run them down. Like, I hate them. I hate the whole bike idea. And so he was like, what? Like, horrified. And I'm like, I just, it's like so optimistically horrible what you're doing. <laughs> and, and I remember, and he just looked at me like I was like a serial killer. But in any case, it's, a, it's an attitude. It's a mental... I would never have created Google, let me just say. So, you know. Right. Anyway, Farhad, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Farhad Manju of the New York Times for talking to me. Thanks to the University of California at Berkeley for hosting us. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts, on Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you're hearing no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 